This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. So, so glad that you are here uh, this weekend um, with us. I, I, love the, I love that song. I love the truth of it. Holy, there's no one like our God. Um, our prayer and our belief is that as we see who God is, um, we're convinced our lives will, will be changed. No, once we see God, our lives can never be the same. Um, at Austin Life, we believe, we believe the Bible. Uh, as a church, uh, this, this is what we are um, basing our foundation on. As people, we all hold tightly to something as truth, whether it's our own logic and intellect, whether it's science, whether it's um, what we've learned growing up, what the, what the government says, what politics say, whatever. We, we hold tightly to something that is our, our direction for truth, all of us. Uh, for us as a church, this is what we're going to hold tightly to. Um, it, we're, we're all going to, I believe we're all going to have our own faulty thoughts. I believe the word of God is true from beginning to end. Uh, and so we're going to build uh, Austin Life Church and, and our lives around what God says uh, in his word. Second Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Ross preached from last Sunday. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So whether you believe this or not, um, whether you've read it or not, whether it's a regular part of your life or not, um, what's, what's certain about this book is that it has changed the, the world. Um, the, the world is a different place because of, because of this, this book and what it says uh, inside of this. Um, 5,600 original manuscripts uh, of some portion of the Bible have been found, uh, which in comparison, um, Plato's, we found seven original manuscripts of, of Plato's work. So like, just to give a comparison of the scope of how, how much the Bible has, has, has permeated our culture, it's the leading selling book by a long shot. I think five billion Bibles have been printed. Uh, Harry Potter is in like number, like top three. Uh, and I think it was around five million or something. I don't remember. Like some, some odd million, no hundreds of millions, sorry. Um, but nowhere near five billion printed copies of this Bible. The, the, this has changed our culture and our world. Where, wherever you land and believing it, it has changed who we are um, as a world. And so um, we've come to learn by reading the Bible, something I've only learned probably in the last several years, is that um, all 66 books, all, all however thousand verses, um, however many chapters, the different authors, there's one story that is being told from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, there's, there's one overarching story that is being told in the Word of God. And as we learn that story, then we start to learn how, how to better understand the Bible. When we learn that, that the story of the Bible is of a God who loves us and pursues us to rescue us through the, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus— then, then everything can start to, to make sense a little more. When we read numbers and we're reading through all the details of the measurements of the temple and we see that God is a perfect and precise and accurate God, and then we see, man, I'm not that perfect or precise or accurate, in which it points us to Jesus who was perfect and precise and accurate on our behalf so that we can have life in him. And so no matter where we are in the Bible, if we understand the story of the Bible, then we're able to interpret it better, to understand what is being said in the scripture. And so as a church, over the next few months, we want to walk through the story, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
Now, there's no way that we can go through every verse, every chapter, um, not, not a chance at all, which is why I, I can't encourage enough reading this on your own. Reading this in your daily life. It's guesstimated that 10 minutes a day reading the Bible could read the Bible in a year. Based on the average words read per minute and the number of words in the Bible, um, that if we, it said if we read for 10 minutes every day and just read, then by the end of the year we would have read the entire Bible. Uh, that's, that's doable. Like, that's really doable. Um, at the same time, it's hard. Right? Like it's one missed day turns into two, turns into a week, turns into a month, right? Like we've all been there, which is why we also need other people in our lives walking with us to help us grow in our faith. I I believe one of the single greatest things we can do to grow in our faith is to read the Bible, the the, the Word of God. It's like like growing healthy, right? You've got to input the right amount of food um, so that your body will grow healthy, like cut out the, the, the fatty foods and in, in, input the superfoods, right? Um, and so it's the same thing with the Bible. We've got to input the right content, the right amount of food in our life so that we'll grow and be healthy. If we don't have enough of it, then we're, we're not going to be healthy, right? If we're putting in the wrong content, we're not going to be healthy. And so I believe we've got to put more and more and more and more and more of the Bible in our lives, just building one day at a time on a discipline and reading the Bible. Um, and so I, w- I want to pray and ask God to speak to us through his word um, as, we, as we look at the very beginning of the story of the Bible uh, so that we would see him, we would taste and see how good he is uh, and that our lives will be changed uh, by that. So w- would you pray with me as we, as we get going here? God, we just, we, 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 we cannot do this without you. We, we can't, we can't, um, and life, it, it just doesn't make sense. And so would you, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us? Not, not anything else, not anyone else, God. We want to hear your voice and your words, God. Open our eyes to see you. God, open our hearts to trust and to believe you. That we would never be the same. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. So the story of the Bible is the story of God who loves, pursues, and rescues a people who walked away from him by sending Jesus to fix what we broke and inviting us into new life with him. From beginning to end, that is what is being told of a good God who loves us and pursues a people who walked away from him and invites them back into relationship through Jesus Christ alone. The only name that, that saves is the name of Jesus. The story uh, of the Bible can be summarized by four headings, um, four primary thoughts. One is creation. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God creating. Uh, and the second is the fall. In Genesis 3, we see man walking away from God. And then uh, the, the third is redemption. We see Jesus coming in the New Testament to redeem people who have walked away. And the last is new life. That from, from the act, the book of Acts on, is how do we live in response to Jesus? And so from the very beginning, creation, fall, redemption, new life. That's the overall um, kind of sub, subtitles, headings of the story of God. And so it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. All things were created by God and for God, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. So in the very beginning, God created everything that was perfect. There was perfect peace and harmony and relationship. There was no shame. There was no guilt. The relationship between God and man was perfect. The relationship between each other was perfect. The relationship with the world, 
Everything was perfect. The Hebrew word is shalom, peace. Everything was right. But we all know that something has gone wrong. Not a single one of us can say, yeah, that's my life. Like, it's perfect. Nothing's, nothing's wrong. Uh, and the reason is because in, in, in chapter 3, Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve to take their eyes off of God, to stop trusting God, and instead start looking around them and choosing to chase after things of the world rather than after God. The Bible calls that sin. When we, when we choose to value anything else above God, and that's what happened in Genesis chapter three, and sin broke that relationship that God had with, with man, the man had with one another. And we've all followed suit. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the, the consequence, the result of that sin is death. Separation from God physically and spiritually. But... God is a a good God of steadfast love, of kindness and mercy. And he sent Jesus to fix what we broke, to introduce a new life for us. Sent Jesus to stand in our place, to, to, to take sin, our sin upon himself, and to rise from the dead so that he can offer us new life. He stood in our place so that we can stand in his. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus who comes to fix what we broke. In the New Testament, it shows the life and how we respond from Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. The, the kids in the kids section, we have these um, Bibles called the Children's Storybook Bible. Fantastic Bible. It is not just for kids. I highly recommend it. It is a great Bible that just kind of talks through the stories of the Bible, always pointing to Jesus. Because that is the climax of the Bible is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so God created us for relationship, but we all walked away and Jesus came to restore us. And the invitation is that if we trust him, we can have new life. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be credited with the right standing that Jesus has with God the Father. That's the story of the Bible. My question is, do you believe that? Have you trusted that? Have you received that new life that is in Jesus alone? Our hope is that we will be a church that is fluent in understanding the story, that we will know what God is saying at any point in the scripture, we'll be able to understand what God is telling us, and that we'll be fluent in speaking that message to others. Because all of us fit in that story somewhere. Every one of us fits within that story, and so the question is where? Have we been reconciled back to God? Are we still broken and separated from him? Are we walking in the new life that Jesus has offered us? And so we want to understand this story. So let's start in the beginning where every good story starts, right? So Genesis chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to it. Um, We will bounce all over the place um, today. And so I encourage you to take notes, write down scripture, um, go and read it later, check up, make sure that it was accurate. Um, Let the word of God go beyond just today. Um, And so we, we will be all over the place, but we want to start in the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1, page um, one, if you, maybe, nope, page, yep, page one, perfect. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So the Bible begins, the story begins with God. 
Everything begins with God. Before anything existed, the Bible says God existed. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the world assumes something has always been there. The Bible says that that is God. He's always been there. He's eternal. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. It just, he, he extends through, through beyond time. God is eternal. He's always been there. Our view of the Bible, our understanding of what this teaches us starts with God. How we view the God of this Bible shapes everything. It's going to shape how we think. It's going to shape how we speak. It's going to shape what we do. And, and my conviction, my belief is that we have way too little a view of this God. We're way too casual. When we think of God, I, rarely do I think that we, we get a proper picture, a proper understanding, a proper awe of who God is. Rather, we're in awe of other things around us. We're in awe of sports. We're in awe of jobs. We're in awe of success. And, and the Bible tells us we are to be in awe of God, that there is no one like him. No one like him. And when we read the Bible, he is the subject. He is who we are looking to know. A lot of times, and maybe you've heard it, that the Bible, we, we think of the Bible as like this blueprint for life. It's, it's my playbook. It's my roadmap. It's going to tell me how to live. And, and it does. It does give us instructions on how to live. But more than anything, the Bible is how we know God. It's how we see him. It's how we experience him. It's how we know this one God. In John chapter 5, Jesus was having a conversation with uh, some very religious, um, religiously smart people. They knew the Bible. They understood what it said in the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures. And yet Jesus told them this in John chapter 5, verse 30, uh, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Not a, not a bad statement, right? Like, I would tell someone, read the Bible, right? Find life. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, these people, they're reading the Bible. They're understanding it, but they're, they're just looking for answers to life rather than looking to the answer of life, which is God. The Bible tells us about God. If we read the Bible, but we don't know him, we're, we're missing the whole conversation. It's like um, I have a conversation with my wife. My wife, she'll sit down and she'll tell me a problem and I'm listening to her and she's talking to about things. And I'm like, okay, I got it. Here's the plan. And I'll, I'll rattle off what the solution is for the problem. And she's like, did you listen to me? I'm like, yeah, babe, I got it. This is what we're gonna do. And in reality, what did she want? She just wanted me to see her and to know her and to listen to her. She wasn't looking for the solution. I was looking past her to the problem and, and, and not really engaging with her in the conversation. And so often, I think sometimes we look at the Bible and we don't even see, we look past God at the, the answer for life or what we're supposed to do. And if we just see him, he will give us the answers to life. He is the subject. He is the beginning. He is the author. He is the creator. This is his story. We're just living in it. And so we've got to come to the Bible to know God, to see him, to grow in relationship with him. If we miss him, we miss it all. Memorize the Bible from verse one to last. But if we miss him, we've missed the whole purpose of the Bible. And so this is his story. In the beginning, it's his. He's writing this. So who is this God? Who is the God of the Bible? Now, I realize that 
in, in saying that, we're assuming that God exists. Like there's an assumption being made that this God, in the beginning God, that this God is real, that God is, is present. Um, and so I just want to briefly, like there's no way I could really unpack um, an apologetics on the existence of God, um, but I do want to briefly touch on it. So Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God. Highly recommend that book. Um, it, it is probably one of few books that I actually started and finished. I'm a great starter of books poor finisher. Uh, this one I actually finished. Um, it's, it's so good. It gives an apologetic um, to, to why God, to answers of major questions, and then it points to how Jesus is the answer to all of those questions. Um, and so uh, I encourage you to pick it up. If you want to get some friends together to read it uh, together, it, it is a fantastic book. Um, and so in, in that book, uh, I pulled a lot of these, uh, these notes on why, why can we trust that God exists uh, from that book. First thing I'll say up front is there is no 100% empirical proof that God exists. Like I, there's no way that I could convince you from here, like here is the evidence, the proof, the 100% verified proof that God exists. Can't do it. On the flip side, no one can 100% prove that God does not exist. And, and so to believe in God or to not believe in God both require faith. Science at best says, I think this is what the evidence is pointing towards, right? And, and so there's, there's faith required on both sides of the equation. But I do believe that the clues in this world point to a God more than they point away from a God. And so three clues I want to give you. The first is the clue of first cause. It says, since everything in the natural world is a result of a previous cause, there must be an unnatural, a supernatural, uncaused first cause. So have you ever wondered why is anything here in the first place? Like, the, the laws of physics say that matter cannot create itself. So there has to be some type of initial cause that begins this chain reaction of cause and effect. We are all here as an effect of a previous cause. The chairs we sit in are an effect of causes that came before it. So if we go backwards, then something had to begin as the first cause, the eternal first cause. So we either say that matter has eternally existed or there was a divine being that eternally existed, one or the other. If we say that there was a big bang that began, well, either the, the matter itself began that, or there was a God who said, let there be, and there was a, a big bang, right? So something had to be an initial first cause for there to be anything in this world. But science says that. I just think that it's probably more likely that there was a, a divine first cause rather than matter being an eternal first cause. And so that's one clue of, of God being in existence, is that there is a first, there has to be a first cause. The second is the clue of design. It says that the, the universe operates at such precision and fine-tuning and is so beautifully designed that it logically points to an intelligent designer rather than mere chance. So, so the world is just far too beautiful and far too precise to just be a collection of cosmic chance. It, it's too exact some scientists say that it is a one in 700 quintillion chance that everything comes together exactly how it is for life to exist. If the, the world was tilted just a little bit more, if it spun a little bit faster, if it was a little bit closer to the sun or further from the sun, all of those things would end life as we know it. 
So there's all of these elements that when you put together them all working just right for life to exist, that's a really big chance. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe there's this chance. Okay, perhaps it's a chance that it all came together. But l- let me give you an example. Let's say we're playing a game of poker and someone gets dealt four of a kind in a row. Lucky them, right? Next hand, four of a kind. Okay, you got lucky twice, right? Third hand, four of a kind. Fourth hand, four of a kind. Fifth hand, four of a kind. I, at what point are you just, I mean, at some point you're saying, no, no, like somebody's behind this. Like there is, there is a human element behind this. It's not just chance that you've got four of a kind, five hands in a row, and yet we'll take that chance for the creation of the world, which is so much wider of a chance, and say, yeah, I mean, it's just chance, right? We got lucky. I think the odds probably play in favor that there's an element behind it who's controlling and determining the chance that we're here. How many times have you walked up to a beautiful painting and thought, man, it's so great that the different colors and paints just happen to collide together into this beautiful tapestry of art that we see here? Most likely there was an artist behind it, right? So the fact that we live in a world that by odds should never exist, I think points to the fact that there's an intelligent designer behind it. I just don't want to risk that odd. It's a big odd. The third thing is the clue of morality. All people have a moral law, a sense of right and wrong, pointing to an ultimate moral lawgiver who determines what is right and what is wrong. Every one of us in our souls has a pervasive and powerful conviction of right and wrong. Some things are right, some things are wrong. Which then would mean there is a standard of right and wrong in order for there to be a judgment of what's right and wrong. You you can't judge something to be right and wrong if there's no ultimate standard of what's right and wrong. Which which then means there's got to be some type of probably moral lawgiver that sets the moral law. And some could argue, well, each culture gets to determine that, right? So this culture can say it's this, and this culture can say it's that. Um, But what we know is, no, even within that, there is a baseline right and wrong. Nazi Germany, they believe they were right. Would anybody here say that was okay? Absolutely no. Well, then why do we get to say no if they say yes? Because there is a standard, there's a baseline moral law. Human rights is not an option. It is there within creation. And so if there is a right and wrong, there has to be a standard of right and wrong. Well, does nature get to call that standard? Does the collection of cosmic events set the standard of what's right and wrong? Because everything in nature says that the, the strong kills the weak. But we would say, no, you can't oppress children. Just because they're weaker doesn't mean you can kill them. So it goes against the laws of nature, which means there is probably a moral lawgiver that sets a standard written in our souls that says that's right and that's wrong. So it's a clue of a divine morality. Again, all of these are simply clues, but I think the clues weigh in favor of a God being present rather than a God being absent. I think they point to a divine inventor rather than chance. So who is this God then? If we're going to say there's a God and we're going to assume that it's the God of the Bible, um, who is this God? Um, First thing we should know is that God is infinite. 
When we come to read the Bible and come to study who this God is, God is infinite. He is far beyond us in knowledge and understanding. There's going to be a gap where we just don't get him. Otherwise, he's not a very big God. Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 through 9. I love these verses. Uh, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, are higher than, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When, when we go to study the God of the story, the God of the Bible, yes, we can know him because he's given us his words, but at the same time, he's God and we're not. There's going to be an element where it just doesn't make sense sometimes, and that's because he's on a whole different field than we are. He's infinitely beyond us. There's no boundaries to who he is. We have boundaries. He does not. So if we take all of the knowledge of this world, like even then we're going to say, yeah, we're limited. We don't know everything. No one in here is going to say, I know everything. Yet God is infinite in knowledge. And so we have to know that there is going to be a gap, and that's okay. That would be true of any God. If the God we worship is a God we can fully understand, that is not a God worthy to be worshiped. Just move on. And so there's a gap. He's infinite. This God, though, he's also great. I struggled with the word great because it just seems too casual, right? Like I had a great pizza the other night, you know? And so now I'm going to say that God is great. So then I was like, well, we can call him awesome, but that just seems too cheesy. Like I feel like a ninja turtle or something, right? Like it just seems real cheesy, but God is awesome. But he is, he's awesome. And so then I thought like, okay, we'll go with the word majesty, majestic. And, and that's accurate too, but like I call, we call the queen her majesty. And like the queen and God just seem on different fields, right? So there's just, there's just this element where like, I don't even know the words to use for this God. And that's good because he's so great. There shouldn't be a word that we can box God in with. He's so incredible. Isaiah 46, 9, God makes the claim, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The bold claim of the God of this Bible is that you're not going to find another one that rivals him. He's unmatched, undefeated. Nothing can stand toe-to-toe with the God of this Bible. Isaiah, Isaiah 40, man, it's one of my, my favorite verse or chapters uh, in, in just kind of giving further insight into the creation. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating the heavens and the earth. He speaks, and the, the, the weight of the cosmos, cosmos it, it obeys his words. How many times have you spoken to nature and it obeys you? And yet God speaks, and, and light is formed, and mountains are formed, and animals are formed, because God is beyond us. And so Isaiah 40, it speaks into a little bit of this creative power of how great God is. He says the invitation is behold your God. Come and behold. Look in awe of who this God is. In verse 12, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That God measured out the waters of the earth in in the hollow of his hand. Curiosity got the best of me. I I can get almost a half a cup of water in my hands. Almost. And and I have decent sized hands. And yet he, the Atlantic, he just kind of, drops. And the Pacific, he just kind of weighs out. And and the the Great Lakes and the rivers and in all of the water of the earth, he measures in the hollow of his hands. Then Then it goes on and he says, he marked off the heavens with a span. 
A span was a, a measurement term. Um, some used it between the, the two fingers here. Is that how you measured a span? Some would say that a span was fingertip to fingertip. We'll go fingertip to fingertip just for, just for giggles, right? Just to see. It says that God measured the, the heavens with a span. Our, our, our scientists have, have seen into 46 billion light years of galaxy. 46 billion light years of galaxy. And, and it continues to discover more, right? One light year, this is where it gets beyond me. Um, A light year is measured by the speed of light. Speed of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. And so one light year then is 5.88 trillion miles away. 186,000 miles per second over the course of a year is 5.88 trillion. It's one light year. We've seen 46 billion light years away. And God just kind of went, yeah, that's good. And we haven't even hit the end, right? Like we don't even know. And so God measures it with the span. Okay, so two things, science is impressive. Like that's, I took an astronomy class in college. It's impressive. At the same time, the God who stretches it with a span is even more impressive. In that, we've seen um, thousands of galaxies. So we have a, a picture here of the Hubble um, telescope took a picture of 10,000 galaxies. So this is, in every little dot is a galaxy. And within each galaxy are millions and millions of stars. And so the, the guesstimation of how many stars there are that, that we can even um, imagine is three septillion. Here, here's three septillion. I don't know what your bank account looks like, but I doubt it looks like that. You know, like when I got two zeros, I'm pumped. I'm excited, right? Three septillion is the guesstimation of the number of stars that, that is known. Three septillion. So, okay, let me, I realize that these numbers are big. Like, it's like, okay, what does a septillion even mean, right? Like, I don't understand a million. Come on, right? So here, here's just to give you some context. 100,000 seconds was, was 28 hours ago. So 100,000 seconds ago, you were probably still asleep early Saturday morning. A million seconds is 11 days ago. So 100,000 to a million, like, yeah, that, monetarily, that's a big jump. It's, it's 11, it's 10 days, right? So in seconds, it's a 10-day it's a jump. One billion seconds, 32 years ago. So a billion seconds was 1986. I mean, there's a lot of you weren't even born. That's one billion seconds. One trillion seconds, 32,000 years ago. So you see the, the jump of size. Three septillion stars is just a guesstimation. And Isaiah 40, 25 through 26 says, lift up your eyes and see who created these. Talking about the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Man, I can't remember my four kids' names. (laughs) Three septillion, y'all. And they've got a first name. None of them move without his saying so. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then he says, why do you think your way is hidden from the Lord? He's got a name for every star. You don't think he sees you? 
Like you don't think he understands what's going on in your life. He's so great. I just, we have far too little of view of this God. David says in Psalm 139 that, man, if he goes to the highest of heavens or the depths of the sea, God is there. That his thoughts are, are more than the sand of the seashore, that he's just infinite in knowledge and power and might. This is a great God that we serve, and I think we have far too little of view of him. Albert Einstein was um, believed to be a really religious person, and one of his students, Charles Misner, um, had this to say about why Einstein was not too thrilled with the, the church, with the, the Christians of his day. So Misner, he said, the design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. Okay, we, we've briefly in this science, you know, session have covered that. The size of this universe is magnificent. He said, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they just could not be talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have a proper respect for the author of this universe. He's a, he's a big God. Far bigger than we can ever fathom. And he's not just powerful and mighty. It's not just that he can create the stars, which is impressive. It's not just that he, he forms trees and mountains and he creates people. It's not just that. It's also that God is holy. God is, is holy. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his honor. The end of chapter one in Genesis in the, in the creation, in the beginning of the story, it says that God created everything and he stepped back and behold, it was very good. Everything was good in the world because of the good God that created it. Everything was perfect in the world because of the perfect God that created it. He's holy, he's set apart, there's nothing like him. He's pure and unblemished. And he cannot be in the presence of anything that is unholy. He cannot be in the presence of, of sin, of, of anything that is in opposition to him. It's like pure water. If I have a clean cup of water and I mix a drop or two in of, of, uh, of coffee, it's no longer pure water, right? You, you can't mix something into something that's pure and then say, oh yeah, it's still pure. It's just, it's just a little bit off, right? If you're going to have a blood transfusion, they're like, oh, there's just a small, like, bacteria in it. It's no big deal. It's just a small percentile. Like, no, that's not working. Not okay with that. Because it's no longer pure. It's no longer clean or good. God is holy. And so he cannot mix with anything that is unholy. In Isaiah chapter 6, man, Isaiah gets a vision, just a glimpse of the holiness of God. He's, he's taken in a vision into the, the throne room of God and he sees these angels, these seraphim that are flying around the throne and they've got six wings. With two, they cover their, their, their eyes because they can't look at how great God is. And with two, they cover their feet because they're humble and they don't deserve to be in the presence of God. And with two, they fly because they're, they're serving this God and they sing over and over and over and over again. And right now, today, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's no one like 
like him, nothing like him. He's so pure, so perfect, so spotless. And Isaiah sees just a glimpse of this God, and his next response is like, man, that's incredible. It's, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He realizes that when he's in the presence of something so perfect and so holy, all he can know is that he's not. He is not that. He is not holy, and he is not perfect. In Exodus, Moses asked God to to show him his presence. In Exodus 34, to see his glory and his full holiness. And God says, okay, but only the back. You can't see my face. I'll let my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. God is so holy and perfect that we cannot be in his presence. We cannot even see his presence and live. That that is unlike anything we know in this world. That's unlike anything we know. And because he's holy, his judgments are right. What What he demands is true because he's holy and he's perfect. There's no one like this God. He's great and he's powerful and he's majestic and he's holy and he's perfect and we are not. And yet, this God moves near us in love. Yet, this God is intimate with us in love. He didn't need us. He had everything. He had a perfect world. He had community in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. He had perfect love and unity within himself. He didn't need us. It's not like God's like, oh my gosh, this is really lonely and boring. Let's create people. Um, didn't happen. He he doesn't need us. He simply invites us into a relationship with him. This God, this God of of the Bible invites us into a relationship with him. He moves near to us. This baffled the psalmist in Psalm chapter eight. the, the The psalmist writes, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. When was the last time that you you sat or you knelt in awe of how great God is and marveled that he cares for you, that he sees you, that, that he knows what's going on, he doesn't drop you. This God, he's mindful of us. It's astounding. And that he moves in love. And he could have moved near in any way. He had every right to move near in, in, in judgment and punishment because we're unholy. But he moves near in love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. It is who he is. It's his character. To say that God is love means that in all times and all ways he is working for our good. God is working for your good. Here, today, now, whatever's happening in your life, whether whether you see it as a good thing or a bad thing, God is moving through that for your good. Two things that impress me about God's love. One is that it's an intentional choice. The word uh, most often used in the Bible for love is agape. That's a love of intentionality, of, of volition. He chose to love us. 
It's not because we were all that impressive or deserving of his love. It's because he decided, I'm going to love these people. It's not because he had this great feeling for us. He fell in love with us. Because if he fell in love with us, he's surely going to fall out of love. Sorry. Are Are we switching again? Perfect. Let me turn this off. God's love is a choice. He chooses to love us. Regardless of what we present to him, he chooses to love us. I mean, I have a hard time loving myself because I know me. I know the thoughts that I have. I know the mistakes that I made. I know that on my best day, it's really not that great. And yet God chooses to love me. This God this holy and great God. It's intentional. And the second thing is it's steadfast. It, it doesn't, he doesn't give up on us, but it, but it continues in persistent love. Man, my, my love, I've, I've got limits if I'm honest. There's probably a point where, where you could hurt me or my family enough that I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. And that's, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's, that's real. Not God. His love is steadfast. 123 times in the Psalms alone does it say the steadfast love. This enduring, this persistent, this love that has seen us at our worst and continues to love us. This steadfast love of God. Romans 5 8, it says, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love. If you've ever wondered, man, does God still love me? Have I really done it this time? Like, have I gone too far? We look at the cross, and the cross reminds us that God's love is steadfast and enduring. It's relentless. It's persistent. This God, it's unreal. So this is, the, this is how the story begins. is with this God who creates everything and creates it and it's very good. It's perfect. He creates mankind to live in that world with him, to enjoy relationship. And yet Adam and Eve and me and you and every other person, we've all said, thanks but no thanks. I'm going to do my own thing here. I'm going to chase after my own dreams. I want to be my own boss. We've all walked away from this God who creates us in love. But his love is steadfast and enduring. And so Jesus comes, God himself comes to fix what I broke. He he comes to stand in my place in front of the guilty judgment. Jesus comes to, to move me aside and stand in my place. And he goes to the cross and Colossians says that the record of debt that I had against God was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So that if I trust him, if I believe in him, then because Jesus rose from the dead, I can rise and be a new person today and forever. I can be restored back into a relationship with this God, into the presence of God to live a new life. That's the story that God 
is writing. And so where are you? If you've received this life, are you you worshiping this God? Are you seeking to know him? The way we view God, it will change everything. If we taste and see that he's good, our lives will never be the same. And the invitation is to come. It's not that God's like holding back. It's not that he's waiting for you to to work your way up, to like build up enough good credit. Like, okay, now you can be promoted into into the real place. Like now you can really know me. The invitation is come as you are to receive the life that Jesus gives and to walk in the fullness of joy that is found in Jesus. Today, here in Austin, Texas, in a theater in Keeling Middle School, this God is real and present and active and he invites us to come and to sit with him and to know him and to be known by him. This is the story that God is telling, the story that he's inviting you into. Psalm 95, it takes that invitation. And he says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains. That's his too. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come and let us worship the Lord and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are his people. We are his people, and so we worship our God. And so we want to worship today, and we want to worship tomorrow, and we want to worship Tuesday, and we want to worship Wednesday, and for the rest of eternity, we want to worship this God because there's no one like him, and he's worthy of our praise. Let's pray together. God, we praise you whether our faith is strong or whether it's weak right now. God, whether we feel close to you or whether we feel far from you, whether we know the words to say or we don't, as best we can, we praise you. You are holy. There's no one like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.